Hello, this is Past Caring, a podcast from the Library and Archive at the Royal College of Nursing, the RCN. I'm Frances Reed, and our aim is to shout loudly about the incredible and essential work that nurses do now and throughout the centuries. So this is a podcast that uses history to understand how we think about health and care today. This episode is about learning disability, to coincide with our current exhibition, A History of Care or Control, on display until early 2023 at the RCN's headquarters in London. Later, we'll hear from the historian Simon Jarrett about the often surprising history of learning disability, in particular how it was understood in the 18th century, and what the phrase to live in the community really means. And Professor Bob Gates, whose oral history project collected the untold stories of nurses who had spent decades working with people with a learning disability in the large residential hospitals of the 19th and 20th centuries. But first, let's hear from Sophie Potter and Emily Curtis. Emily and Sophie are sisters, and Emily performed her play Sophie, named after her sister, at the RCN's headquarters in August. It's all about growing up with Sophie, who has Down syndrome. My first question is for Sophie, and I just wonder how it feels to have a play written about you and about your life. Uh, it's about um, growing up together as sisters, and it's made me so, so excited. Yeah, that's yeah. great, yeah. So Emily, can you tell us a bit about then what the play is about and why you wanted to write it? Yeah, so the play is about us as sisters, isn't it? Yeah. And it starts off kind of right at the beginning when mum had Sophie. She was really young when she had Sophie and it was just kind of, um, I guess, like the treatment that she experienced then and just like the, the stigma and her experiences back in Hull. After examining your daughter, I can see that she has a thickening on the back of her neck and she has a deep groove between her big toe and her second toe. She's got a single crease across the palm of her hand an extra large tongue and very poor muscle tone. And these are all characteristics of somebody with Down syndrome. I'm really sorry, but your child's not gonna be like any other children. What do you mean she's not gonna be like any other children, why? People with Down syndrome have a considerably shorter life expectancy. She'll develop various health problems and it's very unlikely that she will ever live independently. It's very rare for this to happen to someone as young as you are. But we do offer lots of support here at the hospital. I can refer you to a professional and they'll go through all of the options with you, including potentially giving her up for adoption. And then she brought us both up as like a single mum when we was little and it's our experiences as toddlers where we was inseparable and then children at school where we was like best friends, never saw each other as anything different. Like we was practically twins, wasn't we, growing up? Because yeah. we are quite close in age. And then it wasn't really... It would go up to the point when maybe like dance classes and gymnastics, there was all these opportunities for me and then just nothing for Sophie. So they died, we started to go in different directions. Sophie kind of got held back a bit socially and I had all of these wonderful experiences. And then it gets to teenage years where the stigma of, um, yeah, and just people's ignorances towards people with disabilities, especially surf, like the treatment that I would get from people from having a sister like surf, and it just completely blew my mind of like how people could react. There's a girl on the chair behind us. 
She keeps laughing at Sophie and looking at her through the mirror. Why is she laughing? I don't understand what's so funny. I wish her mum would tell her to stop. It's just rude. When we get right to kind of where we are now and how we've done a bit like a full circle and we're as close as we were when we were toddlers. <laughs> so it's just like a big journey of, yeah, our experiences. It covers a lot of like womanhood, doesn't it? Yeah. As well and the things that we've gone through, things that people would assume I might be able to handle better, if that's even a thing. Mm. But we're always surprised at the difference <laughs> in how we manage things and how surf teaches me so much more than I feel I've ever taught her. And then, Emily, the play explores the challenges like you have just told us, but it also is a big celebration of what it's like to have a sister like Sophie. So can you tell us why it was important to show both of those sides of your relationship? Yeah, I think people just always assume that having somebody, anybody in your life with a learning disability, it's a shame or like how unfortunate on. And I've just never had that. It's always just been like the fun that we've had, the surprises that, that I have. And every single person that's ever met Sophie who's come from like a friend or any relationships that I've had, I've always said if we could just bottle Sophie up <laughs> and sell her as medicine, yeah. you would cure yeah. so, many, so many problems. <laughs> and that's where the biggest thing I wanted people to realise is it's not an unfortunate thing. Having anybody like Surf, it's an amazing thing. And especially with Emma's amazing friends, they are lovely to talk to. Yeah, yeah. So you've both opened up new friends to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Sophie, you work as a mythbuster yeah. for Mencap. What does that mean? Yeah, it's yeah, it's good. Yeah. So one yeah. of the things they wanted you to do was show them what you can do independently and making your lunch was one of those things, wasn't it? But yeah. what's your title? Your mythbuster title? Party girl. <laughs> and why party girl? Uh, because I do I go to um distos and d- drinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You wanted to show people that you can also party and disco and drink. Alcohol or soft drinks? Um, have to have. Yeah, and do you guys go out together? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you come to London or when I lived in Manchester, we'd go out with my friends, wouldn't we? Yes. (laughs) And Emily, tell us what you think is the, if there's one you can choose, what's the most important myth about people with a learning disability that needs busting? Um, Yeah, God, I think there's so many important ones. I'd say that, well, service is a big one that I think people think people with learning disabilities don't deserve or don't know how to have fun and have like a socially engaging life and be able to get involved in all of the activities and yeah, the things what life can offer. I think that's an important one. And also I think like relationships and and desires is a big thing that people assume if you've got a learning disability, you might not have those desires and those wants and want to have those intimate relationships. And I think that's a huge thing that needs to change because also the vulnerable members of society, they need even more care and education around that. Okay. I think what I'm trying to say is sometimes it's necessary to take your clothes off, like when you get in the bath, like just now, you can't get in the bath with your clothes on, so you have to take them off. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's appropriate 
Like when me, mum and grandma need to help you get changed or help you do your bra strap or something, then that's appropriate. But sometimes it's not appropriate. Like today, when you had Josh round and you got changed in front of him in your bedroom alone. That's not appropriate, surf. But you do it, she says. And they do it on Sex in the City and Hollyoaks. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, but... That, that's pretend. That's not real. People don't really do that stuff. Okay, what I need you to do is if you're ever in a situation where you feel unsafe or scared or uncomfortable, then you need to speak to me, mum and grandma straight away and tell us. Promise? I think, um, I mean, not personally with Sophie, but with other people that I work with who are in relationships and again we're having these urges and wanting to explore different things but there just didn't seem to be any free facilities that they could access like sex education or even like mm. um, like clinics and if there was they just seemed to seem to be a bit of a taboo thing and they didn't seem to feel particularly safe in those environments therefore they wouldn't attend them and then then the, then that's when the kind of danger or the kind of trouble begins if they don't feel that there's places that they can access easily with information and, and support. Mm. Yeah, so what do you think, this is a big question, what do you think we can do, like what needs to change? I think hugely representation yeah. and also I think it to come through, from my experience, to come through like storytelling and like the media rather than it being like a, a preachy thing because whenever I've chatted to anybody and been able to figure things out for them personally, Nobody kind of wants to feel that someone's kind of dictating, like, you need to do here and this is what you need to do. And, mm. and it always, if it just comes from storytelling and examples, whether that's through, like, plays, films, music, spoken word, poetry. I know it sounds cliche, but, like, the arts, it's like, I feel like it's a responsibility of the arts to be able to offer representation that tell those stories where people can sit there and be like, that's what I need or that's how I feel and that's what I want, mm. but then not feel that they've been forced into anything. Hiya. Can I get um, one disability concession and a carer's ticket for the Sex and the City showing at quarter past four, please? Thanks. The girl looks at me and then she looks at Sophie. Sorry, how, how old is she? <sighs> I knew this was coming. Um, I'm 20 and she's 22. Has she got any ID? No, no, she doesn't have any ID because I don't carry a passport around with her and she doesn't drive. I mean, she's got a student card that says that she's 18. Is that, is that ID? No, sorry, we need proper ID for her. I do want to ask about Sophie and your photo shoot for Cosmopolitan. Yeah. So can you tell me, what was that like? Um, it felt amazing. I had that all pampered up. Yeah. And done my hair done and my nails done. <laughs> and what was the article about? Um... It was mainly about body confidence and how people feel in their skin. And so a big question what they asked you, Sophie, is what do you think when you look in the mirror? What do you feel when you look in the mirror? Um, I said about my um, clothes, the way I dance. Yeah, they asked you what your favourite body part was and you said your shoulders because it gets yeah. you dancing. Yeah. yeah, nice one. And what was you wearing? Yeah, and I don't Knickers. Knickers, brown yeah. knickers. And they were designer, weren't they? Yeah. Were they? Yeah. So they were very expensive ones? Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel when you was wearing the underwear? It makes me feel um, incredible. Yeah, when people had said before that, that the point in doing 
in the underwear is because sometimes if you wear things and people would always be like, oh, you look so cute, you look so cute, and what, you didn't like that? Um, because that I wanted to be sexy. Wanting to look sexy. Yeah. And did the underwear make you feel sexy? Yeah. Yeah. And you also say in that article, I read that you say that sometimes people think you're younger than you are, don't they? Yeah. How yeah. does that make you feel? Um, Not nice? Yeah. Yeah. How old are you, Sophie? 32. 32. Okay, so I'm 33, so only a year younger than me. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's not nice if someone thinks that you're younger. Yeah. No. Um, I do have another question that I, I wasn't going to finish with, but I just want to know. Sophie, on your Mythbuster page on the MenCap website, underneath the things that you like, you've got sunbathing with a pina colada. Yeah. Yeah. You've got discos. Yeah. And you've got Danny Dyer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why do you like Danny Dyer? Um, because um, it's cockney. It <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, because that's what our stepdad is. Yeah, our stepdad's yeah, London, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. Okay. You like? Yeah. I yeah. think it's the Cockney voice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. What's the other favourite film? What you like him in? Danny Dyer. Um, Run for your wife. He's in that film. Run for your wife. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't seen that. Is it good? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'll watch that. <laughs> Rest assured, I've added it to my list, Sophie. That was Sophie Potter and Emily Curtis. My next guest, Simon Jarrett, is a historian who's been writing about disability for many years. His most recent book, Those They Called Idiots, explores the idea of the disabled mind from 1700 up to the present day. When I spoke to him, I began by asking him about the title of the book and why he chose such controversial language. I chose this title very deliberately because language is a very important part of this history. So you begin with this term idiots, which was used right from the medieval period, and words like imbecile as well. And then you go through a whole catalogue of other words like mental defectives, mental handicap, moron, cretin, mental deficiency, and so on. And I think even as you just hear those words, you realise how shockingly they become the language of insult very quickly from having mm. been just ordinary medical terms. So it's important to understand that because that tells us a lot about the place of people with learning disabilities in society. And so I wanted to go back to the origin word, which is idiot, really, which didn't actually carry the same charge in the 18th century, where I start my book, as it does today. But to say there have always been this group of people who started out as idiots and who then have been manifest in different terms, possibly with slightly different criteria about who fits in but we're really talking about those they called idiots and so that's where the book title comes from. And I think what's interesting about your book is the way you also seek to answer the question how did they see themselves because that approach feels quite rare really and a lot of how we understand learning disability is from the perspective of others rather than an understanding that has been developed from and with people with learning disabilities themselves. Why was that approach important to you and how did you uncover these perspectives of people that lived so long ago? Yes, I mean, it's certainly true that the early histories of people with learning disabilities were written usually by the medical profession, very much from the medical profession's point of view, to advance their thesis about what 
learning disability means. And so there was no voice really for the person in their own history. And it wasn't even regarded as possible that they could have their own voice in their history. Now that has started to change. And we've even reached the point where we actually have sort of activist historians who have learning disabilities themselves, who are working with co-researchers in sort of uncovering and starting to own their own history. But when I started to write this book, I was talking to people and I said I wanted to discover how people lived before the asylum because most histories only go as far as the asylum and people said to me well how are you going to find that because these people didn't read they didn't write they didn't become famous you know they will not have left a record but actually they did you know and so you can go into things like court trials criminal court trials civil court cases you do actually hear the voices of people themselves talking. And you also hear the voices of their families and people who knew them. So it's very important for me that we got this perspective that people weren't just the objects of the state or the objects of the medical profession. They were people in their own right who had lives, lived in neighbourhoods amongst family and friends. And your book includes lots of stories about people, about individuals. One of those is about a man named Thomas Baggett. Can you tell us a bit about Thomas? This was in 1780 and there had been some serious religious riots, anti-Catholic riots in London at the time. And the government were determined to really make an example of the people who'd been involved in these riots and had been ringleaders and wanted to have them executed because it was a serious threat to social stability. And this young man, Thomas Bagger, appears in court and he's charged with participating in the riot with demolishing and setting fire to the house of a, a Catholic widow. Now, he is described by witnesses who come into the court as next akin to an idiot, which means, you know, somebody who's sort of got learning disabled characteristics, possibly sort of quite, quite mild. And a witness describes everything he saw. He knew this young man, Thomas Baggett. Baggett was a, what they called a skin gatherer in local food markets. So he'd collect skins, which he'd then take to his employer, who would make them into, you know, rugs and clothes and, and, and whatever else. What was really interesting was this, this very vivid account by the witness of Thomas Baggett's participation in the riots. And then a whole queue of people come into the courtroom as witnesses and they include his mother and his uh, sister, his workmates, his employer and other people. And every single one of them troops into court and says, no, he couldn't possibly have done this. I know Thomas Baggett, look, he's very close to an idiot and give him half a penny and he spends it on drink and he gets drunk and we know all that about him, but he couldn't possibly have done it because I was with him. Now, actually, every single one of them says they were with him, including his employer, who's left a note at the court to say he was with me. He was at work during the day and he couldn't have been. They're obviously lying through their teeth because they were all in different places at the time that this happened. And the judge at one point warns them and says, look, you you yourselves can get in trouble if you're not saying the truth. And they say, no, we are, we are telling the truth and it is on behalf of our friend. And in the end, he's acquitted and he gets away with it. It's perfectly obvious to everybody in the court that everybody's lying through their teeth. But there is this acceptance that obviously Thomas Baggett is surrounded by a community network. He has his family. He has his workplace. He has people who are prepared to stick up for him. There's never any question of him being put into a, an institution or anything like that. And 
the jury obviously decides that it is safe to discharge him. And for me, it, it's a real example, first of all, how people were very integrated into their neighbourhoods and they worked and they were accepted and they were seen as part of it. But also the lengths that people were prepared to go to to defend him. They actually put themselves on the line to, to do it. And there's many fascinating cases like that, which tell us a very different story to what we expect, I think, about how people lived in the mm. community at that time. So, of course, in this podcast, we look at nursing and the medical and healthcare landscape at this time would be very different, obviously, to what we know now. But I wonder what we know about the kind of care or medical care that was available to people with learning disabilities like Thomas. It's a very different picture to what we know today. And I think it's a picture we could learn a bit from today, actually. So in terms of formal support or formal care, for people with learning disabilities, people defined as idiots, there was very little. They did not go into institutions, you know, uh, so historians have trawled the institutional record and it's very rare to find an idiot in Bedlam or Guy's or any of the sort of um, monastery and convent um, care institutions that were around at the time. And the reason for that is the same reason that the medical profession weren't interested in this group of people. They couldn't get better, you know, they were always going to carry on being who they were. So even a place like Bedlam with its terrible reputation for how it treated people with mental illness, the people, the idea was that people would come in, get cured and move out. The so-called idiot population simply didn't fit this model or system of care. There could be care provided for people called idiots and it would be under the poor laws that had been in place since the Elizabethan period at the end of the, the 16th century. And this offered relief, usually in the form of money, but sometimes in the form of actual support to people who really needed it. Now, the thing was, simply to have a learning disability or to be known as a, an idiot did not qualify you for this sort of support because the expectation was that your support would come from your family or your neighbourhood. Or yourself, you know, or a combination of all three. There had to be other factors involved. As well as having a learning disability, you had to be absolutely destitute, have no money whatsoever. And secondly, your informal systems of support needed to have collapsed for some reason. So very often that would be because the parents had died or the siblings had died and the person was left alone, unable to care for themselves, destitute and therefore in need of relief. And so what you would sometimes get would be somebody moving into the home of a local person who would be known as a nurse or a keeper, but very different to what we know as a nurse today. This wasn't a medically qualified person. This was just a term for somebody in the community who would take people into their home and look after them and they'd be given a bit of extra money for clothes and food. So when do we see that shift then from integration, tolerance, whatever word we might use in the community towards learning disability being considered as a problem towards kind yeah. of fear and othering of people, I guess? Yeah. I don't want to over-idealise the 18th century and paint it as some form of utopia. You know, I give instances yeah. in the book where people were very badly abused and bullied and, and badly treated. Okay. But my point was that always there was a section of the community would come back on that person's behalf and stick up for them. I think there was a, a radical shift in thinking at the beginning of the 19th century. I argue in the book that a lot of this was due to the French Revolution 
And this had two effects. It encouraged the left, the radicals, who wanted a new society that would be led by ordinary men, as they said at the time, ordinary people. And there was this sort of utopian vision that we would have this wonderful society in which nobody got ill, everybody lived well, everybody was a part of society and contributed to it. There was no place in that utopian vision for people with learning disabilities because the idea was that illness and disability would disappear. So on the other side, the reactionaries, if you like, the right wing, were terrified that what had happened in France would happen over here. So they became much more authoritarian in their outlook and much more intolerant of difference. And that also affected people with with disabilities who started to be seen as a threat because they were different and because they were other. So people, if you like, were caught in this pincer movement between the utopians of the left and the reactionaries of the right, neither of whom saw a place for them in society. And it's this thinking, I argue, that led to the construction of asylums from the uh, sort of 1820s, which accelerated massively throughout the century. And what you also had was a growing state. So things were no longer settled at the parish level, informally, as they had been, but you had this state apparatus that was actually in control of the asylums and decided who went in. So you had a situation where at the beginning of the century, there were two to 3,000 people maybe in institutions. By the end of the Mm. century, there were well over 100,000. It was a a huge Mm. transformation. Yeah. And what do we know about the people that had to transition from being in the community towards going into an institution? Do we know much about that journey for them? Well, most of the people that went into these institutions were people known as lunatics. So I'm sure you've talked about in in other podcasts, the the mentally Mm. ill who are seen as quite dangerous because of their erratic and unpredictable behaviour. Idiots were still, to a certain extent, not seen in that way, but they sort of drifted into this new institutional system. And at the same time as the asylums were built, workhouses were built, thousands of workhouses across the country. And there was this idea that if you were poor and not coping, it was your fault. And so you would be put into a workhouse, which is a very punitive place, and that would make you want to work and get out. But what happened was that these workhouses sort of silted up with the elderly and frail but also people with learning disabilities. So at one point, there were about 10,000 people with learning disabilities in workhouses. And so they then started to be transferred, firstly to the lunatic asylums. And then people said, oh, it doesn't really work, you know, mixing these idiots with lunatics. And so from the late 1850s, idiot asylums started to be built, culminating in massive imbecile asylums, which were constructed from the 1870s, places like Leavesden and Caterham hospitals on the outskirts of London. Something that you pick apart in your book is this phrase, in the community, or access to the community, or integrated in. And of course, you've looked at that from an 18th century perspective, but also today. And I just wonder, what does real community integration mean to you? And what can we learn, I guess, from from the period of time from the 1700s that we've been talking about today? One of the things that I argue in the book, and that I think it's very important for me to say, is that I described the transfer to the community, back to the community, as the hospitals closed from the beginning of the 1980s through to the 1990s. And I do 
describe that as a great success. You know, tens of thousands of people move back into the community. For the large part, most people with learning disabilities now do not go into institutions and people are living much richer and better lives than they did. However, we shouldn't ignore the problems which still arise. And I talk about people who live in the community now, but are not of the community. And by that, I mean, you can live in a small group home in the middle of an ordinary street, in the middle of a a town or city anywhere in Britain. So it can look as if you're in the community, but you don't have the connections, right? You don't have the friends, Mm. you don't, maybe because of staffing problems or whatever, you don't have the ability to go out when you want, do what you want and so on. A bit like we all suffered during the pandemic and all experienced that sort of life. And that Mm. could be a common experience for many people with learning disabilities. And, you know, Something I'd ask people who work in services to think about is some of the language that's used sometimes. And people use these horrible phrases like, oh, we're going to access the community, you know. And I think, well, I don't access the community. I go out. I'm just a part of my community, you know. So Mm -hmm. I'm not in the community if I have to access it sometimes. So people are sort of half in, half out. You look at somebody like Thomas Baggert who was incredibly poverty-stricken, got drunk all the time, did this sort of very low-skilled job. He was very much in his community. He was very much a part of it, and he really belonged. And so I think if we're going to think about belonging and actually how society needs to be flexible towards people who are different rather than people who are different having to change themselves in order to fit into society, I think we can actually learn a lot from these stories from the 18th century. Simon Jarrett. And Simon's book, Those They Called Idiots, is published by Reaction Books. I'll put a link in the podcast notes. You're listening to Past Caring, a podcast from the Royal College of Nursing Library and Archive. You can hear other episodes, including mental health nursing, as well as deaf mental health care, women's health and nursing during a pandemic go to rcn.org.uk slash pastcaring to find all previous episodes or search pastcaring wherever you get your podcasts. Bob Gates is Professor of Learning Disability at the University of West London. As part of a recent project, he recorded the oral histories of 31 nurses with long careers working alongside people with a learning disability. He himself began working as a learning disability nurse more than 50 years ago at Leaveston Hospital in Hertfordshire, a huge institution with around 2,500 residents. When we met, I began by asking him to describe what Leaveston was like. It was enormous. It was spread over acres. It was spread over two sites with a a main road going in between the two sites. It had a tunnel that went underground, between under the road, between the two sites. It looked beautiful. The grounds were beautiful, but it was a pretty grim place. The wards themselves were terribly overcrowded. The first ward I went on was after my introductory block. You did six weeks introduction as a student nurse. My first placement was Owl Ward. And I went in, and it's difficult for you to, to imagine, but there were 55 men living on our ward. And as I walked in, I was told then that as a student nurse, I was the most senior nurse on duty, and therefore I was given the drug keys and told I was in charge. The understaffing was terrible. Uh, It was difficult to attract people to go and work there. 
Although, you know, I loved it in many respects, but it was very regimented, lots of rules. It was a very curious, regimented day. It started very early in the morning when night staff would wake, wake them and get them out of bed and either help them get dressed or other patients, as they were at the time, would help their other fellow patients get dressed. Uh, ready for the day staff who came on. And the day staff who came on, there could be two or three of you. And so if, if, you, if you could imagine making that your first task of the day, once washing and breakfast and that kind of stuff was over, can you imagine making 55 beds? You know, it sounds a ridiculous thing to say, but that would really take you all morning. So uh, a lot of your role was taken up with physical tasks, making beds, sorting laundry, doing medicines, helping people to feed, washing people, you know, all, all sorts of things, just ordinary aspects of daily living. But with that number of people, of course, you were busy all day. You touched a bit previously on the problems with recruitment, which is, yeah, presumably why you were suddenly put into these kind of senior roles at times, even as a, a student nurse. Um, and I wonder, sometimes you hear when talking about learning disability nursing historically, but also arguably today, this idea that they're not proper nurses. And I wonder where that came from. It's been a bit of a curse, if, if you like, Francis, from, really from our, our very beginnings. As you probably know, learning disability nursing, we weren't always nurses. For all sorts of reasons, we ended up being absorbed into the emerging profession of nursing. Prior to that, many of our, the people who worked in our area uh, were attendants, and they were attendants in the old institutions. And the qualification uh, originally was one called the RMPA, which was Royal Medical Psychological Association, heavily influenced and directed by psychiatry, by medicine. And as time went by, the need for a better qualified, better regulated, more centralised workforce became apparent and necessary. And we were eventually absorbed into nursing, along with mental health nurses, originally as registered nurses for the mentally defective, and then that moved to, which was when I started, the registered nurse for the mentally subnormal, I mean, if you could believe that. But when you think of people now with learning disabilities, they were no different back then. They're not sick. They're not ill. There's nothing wrong with them. And they will get the, the normal range of coughs, colds, sneezes, COVID, you name it, that the rest of us get. So we didn't have such a strong physical dimension, a caring and curing dimension to our role, as did the registered general nurses. There was much more of a rehabilitative dimension to our role or an educative dimension to our role. And so uh, it was always viewed as in some way substandard. I want to talk to you a bit about your oral history project that you did. 
I guess you were interviewing nurses a little bit like you that have had really long careers. I think they all had 30 plus years in learning disability nursing, didn't they? Can you just introduce us a bit to that project and why you thought it was important to do it? It was about trying to identify from their oral histories factors which uh, motivated them, first of all, into becoming learning disability nurses, what sustained them throughout their careers in staying working as learning disability, and then perhaps sharing that with a wider audience of people with a responsibility for recruiting, uh, senior managers. Uh, So looking at what sustained them through a very positive lens. So what did you find about what did sustain them? Because I've read a bit of, of your book and it really does just show how challenging the role is and how much it's changed and how much nurses have had to adapt over the decades. So why did they stay? What was the driver for such long careers? I'm a bit of a cynic and I always assumed it was things like pay and pensions and things like that. But it it didn't appear to be the case at all. I mean, one of the things that we, we found from the people that we interviewed was, first of all, the level of commitment and these, these sound very old-fashioned, but it was really heartwarming, really. But the level of commitment and dedication that they had towards this group of people, people with learning disabilities, many of them spoke with great fondness and compassion about the people that they had supported over the years. Many of them articulated their anger at the injustices that this group of people experienced. And and that was attitudes towards them, um, the way in which services treated them, uh, the way in which their lives and lifestyles were restricted. And they took enormous professional pride and enormous enjoyment and satisfaction from doing what they could to make the lives of someone else better. I mean, I know that sounds a bit trite, but that, that, that was at the core of what continued to motivate them. Um, and then from around the 70s onwards, I guess, there were several reports, lots of reports on institutional care that revealed horrendous things, neglect, abuse of patients, very poor conditions. And some listeners to the podcast will remember this because it was very much played out in the public eye in, in news reporting. And I wonder how the nurses that you interviewed talked about and remembered this period of time. Strangely enough, with the nurses that we interviewed, this really didn't come up. And I suppose in a sense it wouldn't have done because the way we recruited these nurses to our project was an approach we called uh, snowball sampling where we made initial contact with people and they passed us on to other people to become recruits into the project. Now I guess that the reason that they came forward is because they were interested in the project and they were interested in recording you know their oral history so it probably wasn't going to be the sort of nurse that had perhaps even experienced some of these abuses but I think we're all aware, not only of the past, but actually currently, every now and then, one of these awful situations arrives. The thing is, it's another one of these features that's kind of overshadowed 
learning disability nursing and all the positive work that the majority of these nurses do by a very few unprofessional nurses engaging, frankly, in illegal activities. But, but that's only part of it, Francis. There's, there's also a context that has to be understood as well. And that context was one of resource-wise, uh, many of those old institutions were hopelessly underfunded, hopelessly understaffed. Managerially, they were in many instances, not all, but in many instances, badly managed. And bad practice, plus the fact that they were out of the public gaze, were all the right ingredients, you know, for abuse to take place. More widely, I think learning disability nurses, along with everybody else, obviously condemns and is not only embarrassed but ashamed of the perpetrators of that, that kind of activity. My final thought is something we've talked about before, actually, when we were working on this project at the RCN together, and we've talked about this idea of care and control, and then we had a conversation about support and where that comes in and the difference between all of these things. And I wonder if you can just give us a bit of a perspective on, on that in terms of where we are now with learning disability nursing, I guess. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the institutions, the asylums of the past were grounded originally in the eugenics movement. That's how they, you know, became established, was to move people who were different away from their communities, away from society, to places where they could be contained. So it's not surprising then that the only way you can run, for example, a very large institution like Leaveston was by being very controlling. You know, when you've got two and a half thousand people uh, living there, the only way that you can manage it, especially if you haven't got a, you know, if you've got staff shortages and resource implications and so on, the only way of running it is by controlling things. But we've moved away from that. And I think we moved to an era where we used to talk of caring. And I think that is, in my mind, still a very important element. I think to care about an individual and to care what direction their life goes and how well they're looked after and uh, how much they enjoy their life and, and are concerned for the health care that they receive, they're important. But I think we're moving from that to the modern practice of learning disability nursing, which is very much more concerned with supporting people, supporting people with learning disabilities and their families lead healthy, valued lifestyles, but supporting them to do what they want to do with their lives, not, 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 what, not what plans we have envisaged for them, but to follow the path that they want. And if we do that, the one thing that we will need to do is to make sure that their human rights are protected and that we remind people of the importance of seeing people with learning disabilities as citizens in the same way that you and I see one another as unique individual citizens with a whole set of rights. That is the same for people with learning disabilities. And that fundamentally, once you take those kinds of 
values and instrumental things on board, it fundamentally changes, I think, the way in which you interact with and support people with learning disabilities. Professor Bob Gates. Thanks for listening to me, Francis Reed, and the Past Caring podcast from the RCN Library and Archive. A big thank you to all my guests on this episode and to the Past Caring producer, Natalie Steed. You can find previous episodes at rcn.org.uk slash pastcaring or just by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts.